Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Health Collaborative for Medical Providers and Learners Taking Care of Women. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. In this inaugural podcast, I will be having a conversation with Dr. Cheryl Kingsford about how and why one discusses sexual health with their patients. Please enjoy this conversation. Thank you for joining us for this inaugural podcast for the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Today, we have Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg, who's the Division Chief for Behavioral Medicine in the Department of OBGYN at University Hospitals at the Cleveland Medical Center. Also, she's a professor in the Departments of Reproductive Biology, Psychiatry, and Urology. She's an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy, female sexual health, postpartum depression, psychological aspects of infertility, cancer, and menopause, and sexual dysfunction. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. She has well over 100 papers to her credit. She's worked with the who's who in sexual medicine. She's held many leadership positions for societies, including Ishwish and the North American Menopause Society. And on a personal note, many moons ago at the North American Menopause Society meeting, I heard her talk about the subject we're going to talk about today. She inspired me. I went home and started talking to all my patients about their sexual health and have enjoyed a great deal of success in helping our patients since. So very, very happy and privileged to have Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg. Hello, Cheryl. Well, hello, Terry. Hearing you uh, be inspired by a talk that I gave, it warms my heart. And that is the purpose of today. I, I hope that the two of us can inspire other people to go out and talk about sexual health and find that it improves your own quality of life as a clinician, not just the lives of your patients. Amen. I look forward to just hearing our conversation about all these different aspects, again, of of helping people. And my first question was, how does sexual health impact general health? Terry, you know, I get this question every year when I give the one lecture in the medical school that, that year two students get. Actually, that's all they get in their entire four years, really. You know, I get them in year two, actually in the psychiatry block, which is not necessarily the best fit, but it's the only place that it tends to fit. And I get them for one lecture and most of them at this point, you know, will have their laptops in front of them and they're kind of Googling other things or thinking, oh, it's the lecture on female sexual health. I don't need that. I'm going to be a cardiologist or I'm going to be a dermatologist or I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And My message to them to get their attention is to say, look, it doesn't matter unless you're going to be a radiologist or a pathologist that you really do need to listen to this lecture because it doesn't matter what subspecialty you're in. You are going to need to understand sexual health and the importance of sexual health for the lives of your patients. To your question about how does it relate to general health, it has a great impact. Having positive sexual health and good sexual health actually does improve overall health. 
in terms of every sort of organ system. And to have sexual dysfunction has the opposite impact. It can cause detrimental impact on also all kinds of physical health conditions. So for example, if you're thinking about diabetes, so all of those you know, folks who are gonna be endocrinologists are thinking, I don't need to know about female sexual health, but absolutely the neuroendocrine mechanisms that are important in sexual health are going to be critical. And if you see problems in say cardiovascular health or endocrine health or diabetes, you should be looking for sexual consequences or sexual consequences could be a good warning sign for problems in other health conditions. We know that for erectile dysfunction, right? We know that ED is an early warning sign for cardiovascular disease in men. All of these things can also be warning signs of sexual function for women's health as well. But we tend to ignore women's sexual health. It has been underground for a very long time. So that's a long answer to say sexual health absolutely impacts overall health and women consider sexual health to be vital to their quality of life and overall health. That's wonderful. When you discuss talking to patients about their sexual health, you mentioned the conspiracy of silence. How do we break that? Well, let's talk about what the conspiracy of silence is. There is this tendency for women when they go to their healthcare professional to think, I should I bring up sexual concerns? It's probably not appropriate for me to bring that up. I might embarrass my clinician or the, they're not the right person I should be asking. I'm just supposed to sort of suffer in silence and, and or it's just a part of aging or it's just nothing that can be done. And so they don't bring it up, although they would love it if their clinician brought it up. But the clinician is not necessarily thinking about sexual health as the thing they should be addressing with their patients. I, you know, it's not my place. I'm not a specialist. I have nothing to offer. I wouldn't even know what to ask. And so there's this conspiracy. And also many clinicians will think if my patient, who of course trusts me beyond all, has a sexual concern, she would bring it up. And so there is this the assumption from the patient that he or she will bring it up if it's appropriate. And from the clinician, they expect the patient will bring it up if there's a concern. That's the conspiracy of silence. How do we break it? It is up to the clinician to bring up the topic. As much as we would love patients to bring it up, it's not their responsibility. Addressing sexual health is the responsibility of every healthcare professional. It should be part of their review system. You know, it's kind of a vital sign, if you will, because it's, it's so important to address. If you think about how important sex is to your own life and sexual function, I mean, just take a moment and say, would I want to have my clinician address sexual concerns if I had some? Or would I think, oh, I'll just bring it up. And so for you out there listening as clinicians, especially those in training, please know it is really hard for patients to bring it up. And it is an appropriate question and an assessment for every clinician, regardless of subspecialty, to bring up with their patients. And it is not hard to do. What if people are very embarrassed and they don't feel like they would have a good answer if somebody came back with them and said, yes, I do have a problem, what, what do you tell them to do? Well, that actually is one of the reasons why clinicians don't ask about sexual health. So we actually have 
a publication that the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health put out a couple of years ago. It's in, it's actually, I think, uh, free access from Mayo Clinic Proceedings. And it is called the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health Process of Care for the Identification of Sexual Concerns and Problems in Women. And what this does is it gives a how-to to the non-sex med clinician to say, here's how you bring up the topic. And if all you do is bring it up and refer, then you are already a hero. And that's really all you have to do. If your only skill and comfort level is in asking and then referring, that is perfectly fine. And so that's step one. But there is actually a whole, it's, it's a series of four levels to address, assess, and treat if you want to, and sort of goes by by category, starting at the top of just addressing it. And if that's all you do, you're great and refer on. At any level, you can just say, this is as far as I go and feel comfortable with, and then you can refer them on. We follow this from the 1971 publication from Annan that follows the Plicit model that most everybody gets in medical school. I don't know if they get them in nurse practitioner training, but the Plicit model says P is the first level, and that is permission giving. If all you do is give your patients permission, A, to be a sexual being, that I'm going to ask you about your sexual health because I, I think you have the right to have your sexual health addressed or permission to talk about it in our session, in our visit, that's perfectly fine. So to say, yes, I have a sexual concern. And then your response is, I have the person to refer you to. You absolutely deserve to have your your sexual health concerns addressed. That is not my specialty, but we have people out there and give them some referrals. And let me say the only silver lining of this pandemic is that those referrals don't even have to be in your backyard. The referrals can be either in Ohio or actually beyond. You know, as a licensed psychologist, I'm actually licensed for telehealth in about 27 states. So so it allows clinicians to ask and then refer. And sexual medicine experts are not widely found. So now you don't have to search that far because you can find them and telehealth would be the way to go. So just giving permission to talk about it and then refer would be fine. In the Plicit model, the limited information would be as limited as the clinician feels to say, let me show you what your vulva looks like or your clitoris. If you happen to be a GYN or a primary care that's a huge information or to give them websites to say, here are some websites, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health or the North American Menopause Society, or even ACOG has some patient facing websites that can give them information or OMGS for women who want to learn better ways to become orgasmic. So just giving them a handout of publications or websites can be limited information or just talking about, you know, the fact of using a lubricant and how a lubricant can be helpful with sexual activity to avoid dryness. Those are simple things that you don't have to go into much detail with. The specific suggestions would be things like you need to use a lubricant if you have dryness with sexual penetration, or you may want to consider using local hormones if you are experiencing menopause-related what we call genitourinary syndrome of menopause or 
Maybe if you're 70, it's better to have sex early in the morning when you have energy instead of you know, relying on your Saturday night routine. So those are specific suggestions. And then the IT for Plicit is intensive therapy. And really that's just knowing one person that's a referral that you can send them to for sex therapy. That's all you need is one name. And now you've got two, you've got Terry Gibbs and Cheryl Kingsburg. <laughs> But you've got two, and you've got this Ohio, the entire Ohio Sexual Health you know, Collaborative here. If people do have issues, what are the kinds of issues, complaints? How do you break it down for people? I think it's best to consider breaking sexual concerns down for women into four categories. There are problems with desire, and desire is wanting to be sexual, one's appetite for, for sexual activity, sort of interest in. Problems with arousal, which can be genital arousal, which would be the ability to feel genital sensations and pleasure. Uh, Also a cognitive arousal to stay invested in enjoying a sexual encounter. Problems with orgasm, which is the reflexive release of all sexual tension experienced usually pleasurably. And then problems with pain with sexual activity. Those are the easiest ways to break down those categories. Desire problems, arousal problems, orgasm problems, pain. They overlap. Trust me, I know they do. But the easiest way to consider assessing and treating is which is the primary problem so that that's where you go for, you know, sort of thinking about treatment. So, for example, if you have pain with sexual activity, guess what? If your patient has pain with sexual activity, she may no longer have desire in sexual activity because it hurts every time. And so now you've got desire overlapping with pain. But clearly it was the pain that started the process. So you want to treat the underlying pain to see if then desire will resolve on its own. And similarly, if somebody has a desire problem, they don't want to be sexual, it's going to be harder for them to get aroused because they have no appetite. And then with trouble with arousal, they may be dry, they're not lubricated, and that will cause pain. So yes, it feels complicated for the non-specialists because there's so much overlap, but honestly, it's pretty easy to sort of tease out which is first in the, in the cascade of problems. And patients are comfortable telling you that they're smart. Women are smart. They know what the problem is. They know whether pain created a desire problem or whether desire created a pain problem. It is about just asking, which goes back to my process of care which starts with a, just ask. All you need to do is ask an open-ended question and women will not take all day. Trust me, the, the fear for most clinicians is if I leave that door open and ask an open-ended question, am I gonna be there all day? And the answer is no. So if you ask what concerns you, most of my patients start with the ubiquity statement so that it opens the door for them. Most of my patients have sexual concerns or questions. What concerns do you have? they will tell you, I'm doing fine, or I'm so glad you asked, I'm struggling. And if they can't find the language for it, you can then offer, are you perhaps having problems with desire, arousal, orgasm, or pain? And then you go from there. If that's as far as you get, again, you just refer them on. It's also helpful to consider sexual function from a biopsychosocial model. So if we break the categories of problems into four, desire, arousal, orgasm, pain, we also want to consider each of those categories from this biopsychosocial model that says some of these problems can be 
caused by biologic factors, some from psychological, some from cultural religious problems, and some from interpersonal. So, for example, desire. The drive issue, the appetite, could be impacted by hormonal changes, say a postmenopausal woman who's lost testosterone. Uh, we know that that may be impacting her drive. Or for premenopausal women, if there are neuroendocrine mechanisms that are impacting her desire, right? We think about pharmacologic options, which we will get to, but there are also psychological aspects. Depression is so impactful in sexual desire. You know, if you're depressed, you're going to lose your sexual desire. Religious cultural beliefs can terribly impact one's sexual response. And also then interpersonal factors, the quality of the relationship a woman is in will absolutely determine, for example, her interest in being sexual. She might have plenty of drive, biologic urge to be sexual, but she doesn't particularly like her spouse or her current partner, that's going to wipe out her drive, right? But also I see lots of women who'll come in and say, everything else in my relationship is good. We're best friends. We're partners. We enjoy each other's company, but I don't have any urge or appetite to be sexual. So we look at those biopsychosocial factors to help us guide treatment. That's all you need to be thinking about is, well, what might be going on that would guide treatment? And I promise, and I'm going to be a broken record on this at any point that it feels like, oh, too much. I, I, I've reached my limit of being of comfort. Just refer them on. But to that, can I please just make a plea for being comfortable with sexual terminology? Can I tell you there are, Terry, you're an OBGYN. How many OBGYNs can talk about terms like, you know, smelly discharge or bowel function, and yet they can't talk about anything explicit sexually? That, that somehow that just, you know, they trip over their words or they, you know, blush or something. When in fact, it's just as appropriate to talk about the clitoris or cunnilingus or fellatio as it is to talk about cottage cheese discharge. So my plea is get comfortable with that terminology. Don't trip over the words, make good eye contact, right? And have the conversation while you are sitting down and not with your hand on the door and not, and shaking your head saying, you don't have any sexual concerns to you. Bye, Mrs. Jones. Very good. You talked about the, the biosocial uh, model. And I was wondering if you could expand on the biologic aspects of sexual dysfunction. Sure. Well, with regard to my four categories, Let's start with desire. So desire, we think of as being related to dopamine, right? Let me back it up a little and say, desire really depends on where we are in, in our lives. We don't wanna have desire all the time. There are appropriate times to have desire and there are appropriate times to have inhibition about desire, right? If you're in the middle of taking your CPA exam, you don't wanna be thinking about sex in the moment. So it is important to have inhibition. So we think about desire as being on a sort of a tipping point of things that would create desire or excitation and things that would create inhibition or no desire. And on the, those scales are both biologic factors and psychosocial factors. So on the biologic factors that would tip towards desire, you have dopamine, which really is the uh, neurotransmitter of reward processing, but also melanocortins, vasopressin, norepinephrine, those are all 
contributors neurochemically for desire. And ironically, on the inhibitory side, serotonin. We know that serotonin is really helpful for mood stabilization, thank you to the SSRIs, but, but it is not great for sexual desire, which is why many, many of you out there who prescribe SSRIs or SNRIs will discover that some of your patients will have sexual side effects, either difficulty with desire or difficulty with orgasm. Thank you to the SSRIs and serotonin. Endocannabinoids also are not great. There are other sort of biologic factors that will diminish one's drive. So when somebody has a, a desire or drive issue, we try to rebalance that. And there are currently two uh, pharmacologic treatment options that are approved in premenopausal women. One is flibanserin, which is the brand name Addy, which is a 5-HT1A agonist and 2A antagonist. So it works just differently enough on those uh, postsynaptic serotonin receptors to theoretically promote drive and maybe promote some dopamine production. Flibanserin is an oral medicine. It was approved in 2015. You take it nightly, you take it at bedtime because it tends to make women sleepy and sometimes makes them dizzy. But we've also discovered that women tend to sleep better from most of my patients will say, yeah, it makes me sleepy, but I, I feel better rested the next day. But it is an oral medicine and you would know within about eight weeks whether or not it works for you. We've seen in clinical trials, there's a separation from placebo at about four weeks, but really you should give it eight to 12 weeks to see if it works for you. The other is Vilesi or uh, bremelanotide, which is actually an auto-injector. It's a subcutaneous um, injection, but used with an auto-inject device that women can use on demand, which is nice. It is a melanocortin receptor antagonist. So it works on MC4 theoretically, which again with melanocortins tends to increase drive or appetite essentially in, in the uh, prefrontal cortex, some dopamine production. That is its theoretical mode of action. What's nice about Vilesi or bremelanotide is it works on demand. So within about 45 minutes of the injection and it lasting about 16 hours. So I hear women say, you mean I have to have sex within 45 minutes or else? No, no, no. Give it 45 minutes to take effect. And then you have about a 16 hour window for its uh, effectiveness, and then it's out of your system. And so it works to, again, promote desire. So some women will want it on board all the time, and Addy or Flobanserin would be nice, and some women only want to have drive when they feel like it. And so for them, Bremelanotide or Vilesi would be a nice option. Vilesi has a side effect of nausea. I will warn you, in about 40% of women in the clinical trials, they experience nausea. But of those 40%, only 8% actually dropped out of the trial, mostly because the nausea went away by the second dose or it was minimized or it just wasn't that big a deal or it went away within about an hour or they figured out they could use Zofran and that would take care of it. So, uh, and the injections really do not hurt. They are an EpiPen kind of device and it's a 29 gauge needle and women never complain about the the injection. In fact, nobody dropped out because of the injection. And then the third treatment I want to talk about biologically is testosterone. There are no FDA approved testosterone options for women. 
And ISWISH actually has a clinical practice guideline that talks about testosterone for postmenopausal women or peri and postmenopausal women. And there's also a global consensus guideline um, that was supported by about 11 international societies talking about the use of testosterone for postmenopausal women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. There's tremendous evidence supporting its use. And it's used as the male, ver- using recommended, you use the male versions and titrate to a female premenopausal dose. So for example, androgel or testum that come in topical gels, you would get that dosing and you would use one-tenth of a man's daily dose as a dose for a woman trying to get her back to a premenopausal blood level. Okay, that's what we're trying to do, which is somewhere around, you know, 30 nanograms to 50 nanograms per deciliter. That's what we're looking at. So the goal is to bring her back to a premenopausal level, right? And, and using a, an off-label use of testosterone is the only way we can do it in the U.S. So those are my biologic options for low desire. For arousal, there are no FDA-approved treatments for arousal. We do have a clinical trial for topical sildenafil. So it is now essentially sildenafil now uh, formulated into a topical cream to put on the vulva and just inside the vagina that is in a phase two trial looking for women with arousal problems. You know, you can use L-arginine and some other sort of things to enhance sensation and blood flow, but that is the only thing that is in current clinical trials. You could use off-label oral sildenafil or the other PDE5 inhibitors. No FDA-approved treatments for orgasm. We are actually running, about to run a clinical pilot for a mindfulness group therapy for orgasmic dysfunction. We know that mindfulness therapies have worked for low desire, but and we didn't even get to the psychotherapies for any of these, but there's been no treatments for, for orgasm and pain. Can I just finish with the biologic function of pain as you look at the underlying conditions causing the pain and you treat those. That was a mouthful, but thank you. Any room for uh, meds, uh, off-label meds like bupropion or a boost bar? You know, people have been using them for years, hopefully as an antidote to sexual dysfunction caused by some of the other medicines. There's just not a lot of data that Buspar or Bupropion are effective. You know, there are some equivocal studies. I'd say, you know, honestly, I would do some of these other treatments first rather than going to Bupropion or Buspar. But certainly there are some women that might be helped by it, but there's not a lot of evidence to support it. Well, thank you. I, you. You never disappoint. Do you have any last pearls of wisdom? Well, I did want to mention that there are psychotherapy approaches. Remember I said biopsychosocial models. So you would ask me about the biologic treatments and most of the clinicians may be interested in those. But really, I think about treating sexual dysfunction sort of like how we treat depression. There are biologic factors, but there are also psychological factors. And sometimes the combination is going to be really nice too. So some women will, will do very well with psychotherapy alone, either mindfulness because they're distracted or they have negative beliefs about their sexual function and they need to alter those fears or anxieties or beliefs. 
or interpersonal skills or, you know, couples therapy. And some women will do well with a pharmacologic agent that there is some biologic underpinning there. And some women will do well with a combination. So it's not a one size fits all. It is a shared decision-making process with your patient and looking at what the symptoms are and what you think the underlying cause is. And that will help you determine the best treatment. Thank you so much for taking your afternoon and giving us some great pearls of wisdom. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at some up and coming meetings. And we will make sure that the articles you talked about and your contact for uh, appointments will be in the write-up for this podcast. So thanks again. Um, Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you for joining our discussion today about why we should ask every patient about their sexual health history. For a copy of the articles referred to in the show and an outline of the discussion, please see the show notes. Also, if you would like to have a virtual consult with Dr. Kingsburg, see the show notes for her office number. Thank you.